What are the most important challenges of CEOs these days? Well, to answer this question, I interviewed actually Don Potter, and Don has been a CEO six times, so he shared with me some practical lesson insights that can be really useful. We spoke, you know, about psychological safety, about being a frontline CEO, and also dealing, you know, with employees and also with boarding investors. So that is a great episode, please. So if you're interested to, to be a CEO yourself or you want to be more effective in this role, that is really an episode for you. So buckle up because we are ready to go. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. Today's episode, we're going to talk uh, about being a great, effective CEO. And who better than Don B. Hawthorne will actually help us to get to the journey. Why Don? Because Don uh, has over 40 years of industry experience in large companies, startups, and turnarounds organizations. So he has worked in uh, or with 49 companies as either an operating executive or consultant, with most being founded by private equity, venture capital, or angel investors. And in our audience, we have a lot of CEOs, a lot of leaders, actually. They work in companies where there are external investors. So that would be a useful conversation. Don also has, that's great to know, held 11 C-suite positions, so six times CEOs, CEO twice, and then three times CFO, and then has been partner of Grow Equity Fund and serve as an advisor and coach to CEO. So he's someone that certainly is going to help us to go through this. And he serves of five board of directors, and he's currently a go-to-market strategy consultant, helps companies uncover GTM, so go-to-market, blind spots, and then develop robust solutions that enable them to pursue trade investors, corporate partner, and customer. And finally, Don earned his MBA from Stanford. So Don, really a pleasure to have you with me today. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So just a quick uh, you know, step back to the audience. So Don and I are connected on LinkedIn and uh, we we tend to like you know our own comment and post. So there is a lot of good chemistry, but most importantly, I think we share many, many perspectives. So uh, I thought, well, what a great opportunity to bring Don on the show and, uh, you know, and, and share with you, you know, his learning about being a CEO, but also his point of view about, you know, the challenges that CEOs actually have right now. So Don, I really would just start with one question about your career. I mean, you've been on both sides, you know, you're, you've been a consultant and coach, you also, and that's what you do right now, of course, in your kind of remit, but also you've been CEOs and C-suite you know, as I said before, so many times. Um, but there is one thing that makes you quite different than many others, traditional corporate CEOs. The fact that you have been most of the time asked and requested by investors to jump in and act as a CEO. How does this differ in a, in a quick beginning of a conversation from traditional CEOs that normally are hired internally from the HR, from the traditional, you know, they go through the traditional corporate um, moving ranks in the corporate world. So give us some ideas about what's going to, what is the real difference of that? Sure. The, you know, if I were to put a label on it, it was as if I have been a contract operating partner to the equity investor community. Right. So I'm asked to go in and deal with portfolio company issues. And th there's a couple interesting aspects of it that are, uh, that surface. One is, that happens because there's a need for change. Mm. And the, if you think about it, you know, the data shows that some 70% of change initiatives fail. You look at the new product introductions, over 70% typically flop. So it's really living at the intersection of how do you deal with conventional wisdom habits that have outcomes that are that bad and then deliver something different moving forward. It's a great point. And by the way, I agree with you. And one of the typical dilemma of many boards, if you think about, is what shall we do with the next CEO, right? So shall we hire someone from outside or shall we actually get someone from the inside that knows more the organization? He knows, you know, how things get done here, which is essentially the cultural piece of that. But you're right. I think the the real question is not 
that, I think the real question is how much change you want to drive in the organization. Is that right? Because sometimes, you know, internal CEO can do that, but it's not necessarily the right person to do that. Is it, is it, is it a fair assumption? That, that's a fair assumption. And here was an insight I uh, reached a couple of years ago when I was thinking about how you describe what executives do. They're actually in the persuasion business because if you think about it, they have no control over employees, customers, and uh, investors, and corporate partners. So they have to come up with a way to persuade investors that they should be interested enough to invest, partners to do partnering deals, and customers to buy. Mm -hmm. And so then the opportunity to think about, okay, how do you actually go about achieving that persuasion that's where it starts to be a much different conversation than a conventional moving up the ranks, thinking about planning next steps in the, within a company organization. Yeah, I love that. And I, by, by the way, my word, I normally call it enrollment. So, but we're essentially talking is, uh, the same thing is the ability to enroll investors to be part of their journey, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And many CEOs actually too easily probably fail on doing that. So great starting a conversation. I like that. Uh, so let us understand a little bit more, you know, your experience and you know, Don, you know, we said just a little bit earlier, you know, you, you've been CEO yourself six times and I, I'm sure, you know, all experience have been wonderful, amazing, also very different one from each other. But is there a, maybe a, a chance for you to, to get some sort of final takeaways about your experience in terms of, you know, what are the things that you needed to solve most on anything else? You know, what are the typical challenges that you have seen in your life as a CEO? And then probably you see already now, you know, although you changed, you know, your role, you know, and working with the CEOs. I, I think a missing link that's at least underestimated is the requirement for intellectual honesty in a leadership team in both their interactions with the employees and with the board and investors. And what I mean by that is getting issues on the table. And, and this, this is something that I have never forgotten from my first decade of working. Employees know more about what's going on in the company and the industry than many executives tend to remember. And what that means is that when the management team isn't thinking and talking openly about what's really going on, the employees are getting more and more skeptical. So I'm really big on the idea of you get issues on the table, you get everything out on the open. And the way I did that as a CEO is I, when I came into these companies, I would have one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, the VPs and director level employees. And I asked three questions, what's working, what's not working. And if you were in charge tomorrow, what would you do differently? Mm. And what that did is that put, then when I got everybody together to talk about it, They'd already started having conversations in the hallways saying, hey, you know, it looks like it's safe to talk about what's really going on around here. And then we got everybody together and talked about it. We put the spotlights on the elephants. And then you begin to put together a guiding coalition of the employees uh, in the management team level. And this is where the CEO's role is so important because you're sending a signal that it's not only okay, but it's expected that we'll talk about the issues that really matter. Great. And, you know, that's the reason why we are so much aligned. So I love your words. I do believe transparency is a key for driving performance. So I'm 100% convinced about that. But here's the challenge, Don, just to play, you know, Debbie's advocate. Um, in, in my personal view, in my experience as well, leading organization, but also then, you know, when I changed, you know, the, the size of the table, is that um, psychological safety, as we all call it now, you know, is not a default context. It's not something that exists by definition. It's not something that exists by default. It's something that you, as a leader, you have to build. It. You have to build an organization. Because I think sometimes many leaders, they think, or they underestimate the fact that, you know, psychological safety is not in place. So the first time they start dealing with their teams and with, the, with other executives, they expect everyone starts to speak up, 
say exactly what they think, etc. And that is not happening. So they get frustrated because they what's going on here? Why nobody, nobody is talking about what's not working, right? And then frustration builds up, but the reality is, is not at the fault, at least in, not in many organizations. So in my experience, most organizations are so nice or so, um, they build, you know, this habit of being very, of being very open, direct, and transparent is something they build on it. They work on it. It's not something that existed, you know, in the first place. So what's your view about that? So I actually think that the earlier comment about intellectual honesty enables the psychological mm. safety because which, what it goes back to what we were just saying a moment ago, employees know more than people give them credit for. Yes. And more importantly, good people, this is one of my key points from my CEO experiences, good people want to make a difference every day. Does your company let them? And so the way you unleash the power of the employees is you, by becoming intellectually honest about marketplace issues, internal company issues, the interface between them, what you're doing is you're signaling to them, hey, we really know, either know what's going on or we're on a discovery process to figure out what's going on, join with us. And so what that does is that creates not only it's safe to talk about the stuff because you're showing you're doing it as a CEO, but it also begins to enable a sense of urgency. And, and, and it's not a sense of urgency in the terms of panic that some I've seen some CEOs try and practice and implement because they're not really getting the order or the sequence of things right, but it's saying, look, we know this issue exists. Maybe it's a manufacturing issue in the company. Maybe it's a customer issue but we're going to talk openly about it and what we do about it. And everybody goes, oh, you know, we're talking about the stuff that really is going on. And that means that we can get that sense of urgency going about it. And then I personally, as an employee, can make a difference in helping to deal with those issues. Right. And uh, as you just said, which I 100% agree on, it all starts from the CEO. It really all starts from the top. You know, sometimes I think we are, we have all seen CEOs or leaders, you know, point fingers, say, you have to speak up, right? You have to say exactly what you think. But, you know, people sometimes they don't want to do it if they don't see the same level of transparency. And as you call it, I like how you call it, intellectual honesty coming from the top, right? Well, if you do that, probably I will join the table too, right? I will join the conversation too. So I think that's critical. And, and let's build on this idea of, you know, there's a lot of talk in the context of psychological safety about toxic people in organizations. So there was a great article sometime just recently uh, that talked about how, you know, toxic people actually do all right in many organizations and they sort of work their way up because they know how to play the game. And what what I think really matters is if you start with the intellectual honesty, and by the way, that's a phrase that Nathan Furr and Jeff Dyer came up with in a recent Sloan management article that I just loved. And their, their comment is you're unleashing the knowledge of the team members uh, from their article. But what, what that does is that sort of intellectual honesty smokes out the white hats versus the black hats in the organization. The, the good people that really want to make a difference every day and the people that are toxic are going to inhibit the ability for people to make that difference. So what you're doing is you're saying, look, we're going to talk about the real issues. We're going to measure performance on the real issues. And then, oh, by the way, if you're not contributing to getting real issues addressed, it's going to start to be really obvious across the management team and your colleagues in the organization who have said, hey, I'm a good person. I want to make that difference every day. They've bought into the fact that the real issues are on the table and are getting addressed. And they actually, by doing it that way, you have stripped or marginalized a lot of the corporate politics mm. out of the game. And, you, and then they actually become the people that marginalize the toxic people because they're doing stuff that everybody knows matters. And everybody's talking about, everybody's enthusiastic about, and these other people, they they just, um, you know, they they become they become irrelevant. And and I'll tell you one anecdote. It's it's the most extreme 
case I ever acted on in my executive career, but it's it's to this point. I was brought in uh, to run this company, and they um, there was one person in there that was overtly toxic, and and you know the first so the first thing that happens is I'm you know I'm sitting down one on one with these people to ask them what's working and not working and what they'd like to do differently, see done differently, and and this guy's just carping, and I mm. publicly fired him two weeks after joining the company. I mean, I was not subtle about getting rid of him. Now, th- let me describe, and I, I would not recommend that as a general course of action, but it was so apparently obvious that it, it had to get fixed and fixed quickly. So what you have in an organization that's that's in need of change is you've got a bunch of white hat, hat people who just, they, by their very nature, they show up and they wanna do positive things for the company. You've got a handful of toxic people, the black hats, who are, you know, just disruptive beyond words. And what happens in an organization that needs change, you have a lot of people sitting on the fence between those two worlds. And they're not committing one way or the other because it's not really safe to go one way or the other. So they're just sort of hanging They don't know, yeah, who is the winning party, right? So they're there waiting. And so when I talk about this intellectual honesty and then setting goals, putting spotlights on the elephant, figuring out how to make things happen, the white hats get absolutely galvanized. The people sitting on the fence say, oh, it's probably okay for me to join the white hats. So, you know, they're not the most courageous people like the white hats, but they're good people. You know, they're, they're, they, most of them are going to be good people and they'll jump in and then they can make a heck of a difference. Because now you've got teams that are functioning together. And then the black hats, I mean, think of the psychological impact of publicly terminating that guy. The other people, the the white hats and the fence sitters said, oh, my God, he's figured us out this fast. You know, so they're going, okay. And uh, if there's anybody else that's a black hat, they're either going to have a conversion experience to a white hat or they're going to say, I better get my resume ready because – you know, the odds are that he's not going to tolerate my carping either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of things to unpack here, what you said. I mean, for one thing is, you know, there is a quite broad and, you know, appreciation there in any organization. Some point. We have one third of people they are really up for a change. One third, they are not there for a change too. They don't want to. And then there is a one third, as you say, sitting on a fence and waiting, you know, to see how change is going to go. So then they're going to pick the winner, right? So I love that. I think it's resonated a lot with my my experience too. Um, and also, I think you're right. I mean, driving the sense of urgency and making sure that, you know, people that stay are will be the people then they will be embraced, change it. I think it's the way to go. On the other end, though, I do appreciate the fact that many people have a very, I would say they are reluctant to change just because they had a bad experience in the past. So they need more you know, momentum, energy, uh, appreciation about, you know, their own personal journey because they might come away, right? As you say, it's just the fact that they need a little bit more time than others, which is which is a very good point. But you're right. If there is someone extremely toxic to me, it's absolutely nonsense keeping in the organization. The other thing, Don, uh, you know, you and I, we, I think I wrote a post about being a frontline CEO. It was quite, I wouldn't say viral, but it had a lot of traction, a lot of comments. I think, Don, you engaged too in that comment because you are one of the big promoters of a frontline CEO definition. Mm-hmm. Is that something very much, as I think it is, related to this conversation we are having, right? Because you say we want everyone to speak up and say exactly what people think and what people say, and, you know, and building that, that culture in the organization. Is being a CEO very much open and there for listening all the ideas and thoughts and perception that people have the front line, the way to go for those CEOs that are now thinking, well, is it my job or has to be my executive team that should actually go around and giving me, you know, a gist of what's going on in the front line? Because that is a question. So I'll, I'll riff on the, one of the most influential moments of my career, which happened in 1990. And I was an early young CFO and I'd come up through planning and analysis. And so, you know, I was definitely an analytical type. 
And uh, the Kirk Grab, the then CEO of Genentech, was on uh, my company's board, and he told me that he required all of his executives to spend time at least once a quarter in the field talking with customers. And and I was I was blown away. And so when I became CEO, I made a point of traveling with the reps to talk to customers and non-customers. But to your point about being a frontline CEO, I think there's multiple dimensions. Uh, that are really relevant here because, you know, I, I, I put the old label of management by walking or wandering around on this topic. So what you've done by putting the spotlight after my one-on-ones on the elephants in the room and then setting goals to address the elephants in the room, I would then wander around and I talk to employees at all different levels and say, you know, here's this issue. You know, we've got a goal as a company on this. Tell me what you're doing on it. How's it working? You know, what's not working? And so one, it it allowed me as a CEO to be really well informed by what was going on on the edges mm. that, you know, wouldn't necessarily work their way up through the multiple channels and layers in an organization to get to me. And so it kept me informed. It allowed me to ask questions and, and pick up the little nuances it was sending a signal to the employees that I was interested enough to be asking questions at their level and understanding their issues and then finding a way to incorporate it into the bigger right. company issues. So, so there's that internal oriented uh, side of things. And then similarly, when you're talking to customers or even corporate partners that could be corporate partners, you're out there listening and talking about um, the what's going on. You know how. You know what are the issues they're facing. You know, do our products solve your problem? Get help you get your job done better, faster, cheaper. And so there's you you start doing. And it's a little theoretical, but I think it's worth saying because your whole concept of being a frontline CEO solves what. Okay, here we go. The Hayekian knowledge problem. So the the Nobel laureate Hayek wrote, he said, look, information knowledge is really disparate. Mm. And it's in small, incomplete pieces spread among employees, customers, people, other people in the marketplace. And it's only by being a frontline CEO, by getting out and talking to employees and customers and non-customers and corporate partners, that you start to pick up the 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 disparate pieces of knowledge and then you can start to see patterns and associations and and that then allows you to connect the dots and and then initiate yet more conversations so think of it as teasing out stuff that might not otherwise do and that's really the management by wandering around frontline ceo concept in action yeah it's great so 100% with you so i know if- uh, a few other people they don't believe that that is right. It's it's all about hierarchy. It's all about empowering the executive team to do that. No, I I'm, I don't buy it. I think the CEO must be absolutely in the front and talking to people as you just uh, suggested. Okay, great. So we uh, we essentially discussed for a few minutes. You know the the element of intellectual honesty, the elephant in the room, you know, the psychological safety, being a front line. So that is really one big, you know, thing about challenges of a CEOs that you resonate with because that's part of your experience. What other challenges that we can, we should probably identify that could be useful for, for you know, for the audience today to say, oh, that is happening to me too. Or maybe that's something that I'm not at the moment looking at but probably it's better that i start looking at so let's talk about two things uh the second one is i'd like to talk about boards and investors but let's begin with employees so i i starting almost 25 years ago i developed a habit of encouraging the formation of voluntary swat teams and SWAT originally was spelled SWAT, like the military police that descend into an emergency situation. And then in more recent years, I changed it to SWOT, as in strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, because that's what you're dealing with. So uh, SWAT teams were uh, really built on the idea that good people want to make a difference every day. And they Mm -hmm. are a mechanism for allowing good people to make such a difference. So here's how it goes. So the classic disengagement you know, resignation mindset 
that can lead to come from employees being frustrated is that they can't make a difference. They know stuff that's going on, but they don't have a pathway to enable action and, and change change outcomes. So what I would say to everybody is two to four people. You know, you pick the topic because you're the one closest to it. You know what the issue is. You you form your own team. You define your own mission. It had to be highly specific and measurable, and it had to be a single topic. And when you and so you go off and deal with it. We publicly announce these teams. We publicly announce their mission. They get to publicly report on their discoveries, and then they had to disband because there were no standing committees. They could choose to form another SWAT team after that to address another issue. And I only had one rule, no VPs on those those teams, because people don't talk as openly when a VP is around. And I wanted to encourage, you know, Mm -hmm. stirring things up. So I, I actually, when somebody asked me, well, how do you describe that? It sounds like it creates all sorts of messes. I said, yeah, it's constructive disruption in an organization. Because right. as you and I know, there's all these silos. Yes. And, and to go back to the knowledge problem, you know, people aren't connecting the disparate pieces of knowledge and, and seeing patterns. And so what ends up happening is two things. One is you're, to, to quote Rita McGrath, you know, you're getting out on the edges and seeing what's on the margin so that you can see around corners about what's coming, either internally or externally. You're empowering these people to address what they know really matters. They're getting really excited because now they know they can make a difference every day. And and it just permeates the entire organization. And what I would then do is not only would I be wandering around to ask them as a frontline CEO, you know, how your goals coming, I then start to ask, well, how are your SWAT team efforts going? So it it was a real signal to the VPs not to get too controlish. You know, they needed to support those efforts inside the or their department. Because if they didn't, I was learning a lot about them in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to do was by going around again, I'm keeping informed. I'm putting some pressure indirectly on them to stay informed because then, you know, they know that I'm going to be raising things I hear about in the management team meetings. So they jolly well better be on top of the same issues or else they're going to look bad. And and then what's also happening is you have a self-selection process with these SWAT teams where the, you know, your future leader, middle management leaders are self-identifying because they're the ones that are volunteering to step up and do these additional things. And and again, the hallway and lunchroom conversations that follow is, you know, hey, you know, I'm really dealing with this issue that's been bothering me for six or 12 months. Oh, this issue's bothering you? Why don't you go form a SWAT team on it? And then then they'd also say, well, and, you know, Don, the CEO is just around here. And, you know, he was asking me how it's going. And so, you know, like, we're getting recognized, guys. You know, so like, let's so the energy level would just really soar in an organization coming from that. Yeah. And by the way, I, I love the concept for a couple of reasons. One is pretty much aligned with, uh, and the other things actually align as well, you know, with a typical, you know, I'm sure that you are a fan of, you know, John Cotter, you know, leading change uh, framework. And most of the things that you're saying, it's not the same, but, you know, they probably recall a similar approach to change, et cetera. And to me, really, the the SWAT force, the um, the SWAT team that you are um, describing, it sounds like uh, what we call sometimes, you know, a task force, right, or mm-hmm. a sort of coalition to solve a specific challenge in an organization. But I like how you describe, which is more like a cultural element of that. So it's where everyone actually can start, you know, a SWAT team tomorrow morning if there is a problem to solve. Uh, it sounds like the team has freedom and autonomy to do to make changes, I suppose, right? Because mm. the, the the absence of VP is probably, you know, underpinned that. Now, I know the CEO's organization, they have task force or similar setting, you know, for some of the major challenge or performance challenges they have. But some others are a little bit reluctant because they, oh, what's gonna happen then? You know, I have maybe five of different subgroups working, but then 
instead of creating more um um you know a, a probably a more cohesive organization actually by doing so you can create more islands so you can create more silos although i know there is not like this but that is one of the objections at least i got in the past is creating more islands and potentially is do they have the power and authority also budget it can make a decision without the vps because otherwise they don't have power enough to drive changes did you consider this objection did you did you how did you deal with that so exactly so you know you think about what's the core problem that most organizations face that that's a dominant problem and that is the silos the lack of sharing of information and so i'm willing i was willing as a ceo to tolerate the uncertainty and the disruption Good. from squat teams because i looked you know when i you look at the marketplace and all the uncertainty in the marketplace it's a dynamic world. You're on a dynamic journey as a company. You have to be willing to accept the fact that you're dealing with uncertainty. So, you know, you can't predict how those teams and the efforts and what mm -hmm. they come up with is going to unfold, but you just accept it that you'll figure it out when you get going on it. And I loved your comment about John Cotter. So I, I, I have to actually pause and say, I read pretty much everything Cotter wrote back in the 90s. And I was so taken with his uh, eight steps uh, for change that I, I, as I was putting together uh, notes for our conversation today, the intellectual honesty and getting the issues on the table is the first step, how you create the sense of urgency. When you put the spotlights on the elephant and you pivot to setting goals, what you're doing there is you are building a guiding coalition. Yes. And then what you're doing uh, when you start to actually set the goals and have weekly management meetings, you're creating a vision. So that's his third step. And then the uh, fourth step with the SWAT teams is you're enlisting a volunteer army because that was what I always struggled with. It's like, how do you, you know, how do you not have it just be a couple people at the top of the organization saying, oh, we need to do something different. So you've engaged the entire organization by the intellectual honesty. So because the, the other problem that I found is, you know, how do you create a sense of urgency without it being forced? Yes. So the intellectual honesty triggers that. Then you've got your guiding coalition. You've got your uh, vision, and then you've got your your volunteer army. So then the wandering around that we were talking about, where I was talking to people, including customers outside the company, that's where you get into the fifth step, which is that you, by management, by wandering around, you're uh, you're working the process of eliminating and removing barriers. And, and most importantly, when you get to the end, because since 70% of change initiatives fail, what ends up happening is you can have these behaviors, but they don't become organizational habits. Right. And it, it's transforming them into habits that allow change to stick. But the, the, what then happens is when you start to have short-term wins, so now you're removing the barriers, and I placed a huge emphasis, like consciously planning short-term wins, because if people are feeling anxious about the state of things in the company, a short-term win lowers their anxiety levels, yes. but it doesn't eliminate it. And with a little more time, the anxiety levels begin to inch back up and another short-term win takes it down. And if you can sustain a repeated set of short-term wins, then people begin to say, oh, this is going to work. This is going to stick. And that's when the behaviors have a chance to become habits. And then I've always viewed my job as a CEO is to encourage repeated behaviors, whether, you know, from all the different steps we've talked about all the way through, then what that's doing is that is enabling habits, uh, practices and behaviors to become habits. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm glad that we, we came back to Cotter because I do believe, as you, that is one of the most powerful and effective way of leading change. Uh, because it's also very practical in the way how you describe it and the way I experience myself. It's very practical. It's not, nothing it's easy, but at least it's a simple and help people to structure, you know, a process that sometimes could be really long in an organization and could necessarily 
uh, lead to you know immediate return you know as soon as you start it so i love that great it, so uh, sorry go on yeah, so it's it, you know it's fascinating because when i read his material and i actually had the pleasure of having lunch with him once is that you you know it's theoretical and so what i've been trying to describe here with the various steps for leading change it's a more practical ap application it, 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 of that i reduced his eight steps to like okay i know what behavior what steps what yes. actions ceos can let their organization guide their organization to take to actually achieve those steps great wonderful so you mentioned so to the last challenge is more related to boards investors so No, tell us a little bit more about what you have in mind in terms of major challenges you have with uh, with the board, with investors, etc. Well, it, I've been attending every single board meeting of the 11 companies I've served as an officer at since 1985. So I've seen great boards, I've seen lousy boards, I've seen great board leadership and lousy board leadership. Mm -hmm. So I, I have some pretty strong opinions about um, such things. And what when I was CEO, And in most of the cases, I we didn't have a board chairman. So I actually got to set the agenda and run the board meeting. Right. And so let me start with the the tactical aspects of how I ran a board meeting. But then I'd like to talk about some more strategic issues that I think a CEO needs to do. When I ran a board meeting, I would I would regularly update the board every couple, three weeks with an email update. And I'd have phone calls with them. But I did the email updates because I, I firmly believe that if you do only phone calls with board members, there is a risk that you'll do selective disclosure at so different levels of right. disclosure to different right. board members. So you're not keeping them on the same page. Right. And a CEO's one of his her her primary responsibilities is to make sure you keep your board aware of what's really going on. So that would be that would be what I would be doing between board meetings. And then I would ask each of them going into the board meeting, you know, what are the hot topics that you'd like to see addressed? And then at the very beginning of the board meeting, I would go around the table and I'd ask each board member individually, what are the one, two or three topics you want to hear be addressed at today's board meeting? So then with that written down on my notepads, we'd begin the board meeting. And then I, as the management team is making presentations, I would then weave in their desired topics and make sure that they got addressed so that they didn't feel like they were leaving with un unaddressed topics and therefore feeling dissatisfied about the outcome right. of the board meeting. Right. So that, and, and then what I did with the employees, the executive team that would be presenting, I always let them present and they sat, I made sure they sat in the entire board meeting except for the executive session, because I wanted them to hear what the board was saying, and I wanted the board to hear what they were saying. So the entire management team was in during each of their individual presentations. So there was, there was no information, selective information in that way either, because I wanted, I, and I let, you know, I'd coach and guide them on how to prepare their presentations. But I also made them stand on their own two feet in the presentations because I wanted to see how well they handled the pressure of yeah, presenting good. and discussing with the board. And, you know, when you've got younger executives, sometimes, you know, you need to do coaching and tutoring, which is perfectly fine. But, you know, you're actively trying to develop your team. Now, there's a more strategic issue that's become a huge hot button for me in recent years. And that is that. Boards meetings are typically, I've actually called it performance art. And I, I so dislike a stilted presentation, which is mostly PowerPoints. And, you know, we're running through plans and we're talking about this and that and so forth. And it doesn't enable a chance to really talk about what's going on in the business. So think about, the, so the topic is, what are the critical assumptions? So every company has critical assumptions that have to be true for your business strategy to work. Mm -hmm. And I find that most companies that either I worked in or I work with as an advisor, they frequently do not articulate those assumptions explicitly. 
If you don't do that, you can't test the assumptions, which means you're going to keep going on down the line, implementing your business plan based on some assumptions you could have identified and tested earlier on, except now the stakes are getting higher over time. Right. And, and then, and then when things blow up, it's like, oh my God, you know, we should have known, but maybe we didn't think well enough. So what I suggest with boards is investors have in their investment memo that they share with their partners before they put the first money into a new portfolio company, they have a section where they identify the key assumptions that have to be true. And I and then I think management teams need to be encouraged strongly to develop and clarify their own assumptions. I'm going to say to have a really meaningful board discussion and interactions, you put those two together and you share them with the board. You say, look, guys, this is what we as a group agree are the key assumptions that have to be true for your investment to be worth a lot and us to build a great company. And so let's have a section of each board meeting be dedicated to up management teams updating the board on which critical assumptions we have tested since the last board meeting. What did we learn? Did we validate the assumptions so we can keep going? Or do we need to change based on some not being validated feedback on the assumptions? So what you're doing with the board is you're stepping out of this planning mindset. And Roger Martin has just nailed this issue. He says, look, a plan is not a strategy. It's a laudable list of activities of things under the management's control. While a strategy is something that's going to compel customers to act, customers whom you have no control over. So by having the assumptions conversation with the board, their thoughts, management team's thoughts, you're bringing the board, the investors along on your on a what's a dynamic journey where you can make real time adjustments. So when we go talking about all this change stuff and all of this dynamic stuff of how do you you know really make build a great company, what you're doing is you're developing a practice that really really helps you know ensure that you have the best shot of being successful. Wow, that's great. That's brilliant, by the way. And it's not a typical conversation we normally have in this podcast about, you know, relation with the board, but also if making more efficient time and more effective time as well with the board, you know, when uh, when you are having these meetings. My personal experience with boards is exactly that, you know, how you describe a little bit earlier when you start, you know, introducing this topic. You know, many board meetings are, I call it the I call it please meetings where essentially, you know, the CEOs and the team presenting data in order to please them, to just to show them that everything is going on. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, the real truth of things happening there, I wouldn't say they are, you know, they're not publicly discussed or presented, but they're trying to, they're already mitigated, right? They're trying to, you know, put some, some lights on it, but they're not really going into much detail because they don't want to open a Pandora's box and then having, you know, the board or investor worry about something because they they think they can deal with the with what's going on. Your well, approach is definitely effective. And and what you're raising though is a really important part in your last few words, because it is atypical to do that with a board and investor group. And you know, the management team's closer to what's going on in the marketplace for their company than the board. The board's not running the company. They can't and shouldn't run the company. So what it takes is a certain amount of courage for a management team to embark on this effort to say, look guys, gals, we're gonna talk about these assumptions and what we're doing against those assumptions. And it's dynamic and we're gonna, tr we're gonna trust you. And this is the key part of it. We're gonna trust you as the board that the minute we step out of this, you know, laudable list of activities that's all structured based on what's known, even though we live in a world filled with unknowns, we're going to trust that you will be open with us and allow us to share this. And while holding us accountable, not take us down by us disclosing, you know, potential vulnerabilities, because the alternative is you don't do that. Something goes wrong down the road, and then you've got an oh my god moment, yes. and then the board really reacts negatively. And so, what you're saying is, look, we're going to do this together, 
and you know give us a better chance for longer term success. Yeah, brilliant. Hundred percent agree on. I like I like it a lot. Thank you so much for for sharing this, Don. All right, so Don, we're approaching the end of this conversation. I have a feeling, and I'm sure that you are with me, that you and I probably could stay for hours. But unfortunately, we don't have the luxury in this podcast. But of course, then at the end, I'm going to ask people to give us some comments, ideas, but also reach out personally, of course, if they want to discuss a little bit more. Uh, I have only the, uh, the last few questions for you, you know, very quick who and they for you also for understand, uh, to understand a little bit more your personality. So, Don, if we, in a short answer, my last three questions are, what is, you know, among many things, what is one thing that you probably really learned across your entire career that you want to share with, with, with the audience today? One thing. Good people want to make a difference every day and management teams don't ask enough. Are we clearing the pathway so they can? No, wonderful. Yeah, that is a good quote, by the way. I love it. You should use it because I love it. Maybe you use it already, <laughs> but it's a very good one. I love it. On the other end, is there anything else that you, or anything that you would have maybe done differently in your career, you know, in the inside? So I'll, I'll riff on uh, Steve Jobs' 2005 Stanford commencement address. Right. One of the, he had three points, if I remember right. One of them was you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And so what, when I was asked to go into these companies by the investors, they were one of two kind of situations. There was a need for change in both cases. In one case, it was more of a performance improvement. Right. And in the other case, it was a little worse. And sometimes they, you had to go through formal restructuring activities. And so I thought I was, you know, turning into, you know, a CEO, a traditional CEO. And what I actually got labeled back, and this is going back 15 plus years, you know, I got labeled as a turnaround executive. And, you know, boy, that wasn't what I thought I was doing. Uh, but but here's the real point. And this is the, the lesson learned. I'm not sure I'd do anything different because I actually asked, uh, I told one longtime highly successful CEO, I said, you know, I want to be this for traditional company CEO. And he said, no, you don't. You'd be bored silly doing 15% year over year earnings growth. <laughs> and but But here's the key point. What I became is, an expert based because I look back at all those experiences and I said, what did those companies do or not do before I was asked to come in? What did we do after I arrived? And what I began to uncover is that the question of why are there not more great companies? Really, it's not because of a lack of executive ambition or intelligence or investor capital, breakthrough technologies or ideas. I concluded that they don't get go to market right, properly understood go to market right. Mm. And so then that became a way of saying, look, the real thing I was doing back then, so this is the connecting the dots part, is I became an expert at uncovering go to market blind spots. And all the stuff we've been talking about, how do you galvanize an organization? How do you be a frontline CEO? How do you interact with boards and investors? And making sure you're testing critical assumptions and being curious and humble because of the uncertainty that goes on in a dynamic marketplace. Those are all places where GTM blind spots exist. And if you aren't focusing on uncovering them and then removing them, they can easily become GTM black holes. And that's why 70 some percent of new products fail. That's why so many, there's so few great companies. And so that's the mission part now of what I'm doing. Great. Wonderful. Last question, Don. So what is your approach to learning? So first of all, is it more reading? Is it more about talking? Is it more about listening? It's about whatever. So what is your, you know, in other words, how important is learning for you? as an individual, first of all. And if he's reading, so what is one book that really made a huge impact on your life, on your profession, your career? Of course, besides Carter that we already, you know, spoiled. So I, I would, I, when I was thinking about that question, I was thinking, okay, well, Cotter's book would certainly be uh, <laughs> right, right up there, if not at the top. 
And I, the other thing I would do is I would say, go learn what Roger Martin has written, uh, mm. both about the playing to win, but he, he did a nine minute HBR video. I think it was last year. It rocketed through into the millions of views. And what that's the a video that says, you know, a plan is not a strategy. And he really walks through you know, what's a plan. It's stuff that's known and under the control of the company. A strategy is what's unknown and dealing with customers. And I actually think, again, as an operating executive, I think that may be the single most unaddressed distinction that boards, investors and management teams fail to get right. I agree. I love that distinction, by the way, and I feel guilty. I should actually have read more stuff from Roger Martin, but I have time. So thanks, actually, by the way, for the reminder of, of a great source for inspiration. Um, Dom, so where people should go if they want to find out more your story, your life, and what you do now? Sure. So my LinkedIn profile is a, uh, a great way to uh, get sort of the overview of my go-to-market consulting business that I'm doing. And one of the things that I developed in the last few years is a go-to-market roadmap, GTM roadmap. And I just finished posting a 17-video series that's in the featured links category of yep. my profile. And that's based on taking excerpts of a podcast that I did in March with a local incubator and breaking it down into a set of different go-to-market topics. So that's where people can begin to, you know, it's a publicly available resource to learn mo more about how and why go-to-market is the missing link in building great companies, and then reach out and talk. I, I, I do workshops. I can do coaching works. I can actually do go-to-market work. And in some cases, I have served as an interim executive. Wonderful. I'll put you know the link to your LinkedIn profile, Don, on the, on the show notes so people that can easily have access to. Don, thank you so much for, for the time spent uh, together. It was an amazing conversation. really like it. And uh, yeah, looking forward for the next one. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me.